This is the beginning of the Christmas season, and uh, usually uh, the first message uh, for the Advent season is uh, prophecies about Jesus, and so uh, this week and next week we will do do, uh, the most important prophecy about Jesus, Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 through 53, 12, uh, the suffering servant, and uh, so this week we'll cover, cover the first six verses, and then next week uh, the next nine verses. Uh, as we prepare for uh, Christmas time, Jesus coming into the world, and uh, there are many prophecies that speak about that, speak about where he will be born, speak about what he will do, uh, what lineage he will be, what he will do in his life, what will happen to him, but uh, this prophecy is maybe the most significant about the meaning of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. It tells us that he suffers in our place and he suffers for us to pay for our sins uh, because of what we have done and a very significant prophecy. Um, Remind you as uh, we go through this that this is old written 700 years before Jesus, so this is 2,700 years old. Uh, It's hard sometimes to read things that were written 2,700 years ago. They have a different way of thinking, a different way of writing, Uh, and what has happened is Isaiah has taken a sermon that he has preached, and he was a court prophet, and he was from the nobility, and he would preach sermons, And later he would rework those sermons and put them into poetry and then write them down on paper. And uh, that's what you have in mostly the uh, prophet Isaiah, uh, one of the longest uh, books in the Bible and uh, yet one of the most uh, wonderful. Uh, Isaiah is a very smart person. He uses, uh, for, for those of us who are trying to read Hebrew, He writes with very big words, and he uses unusual words. He doesn't use simple words, and it's doubly hard because he's writing poetry, so you're not getting a lot of flow of thought. It makes it very difficult. Uh, So one of the things we'll be doing today is we'll be talking about the poetry, how 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 to handle poetry, how to interpret poetry, and how to apply poetry to your life. If you go to the next slide. Uh, There are five stanzas in this poem, and they each have three verses. Um, My my NIV Bible, um, and I have the 1987 NIV, has divided the paragraphs accurately. So verses 12 through 15 of chapter 52, that is the first paragraph. By the way, chapter divisions were not put in there by Isaiah. Right, that they're put, they're, they've put, they're put in there uh, at least at least 1,700 years after Isaiah wrote. Verses are not put in there by Isaiah. Those are added much later for our convenience, just to be able to find them. So sometimes your chapter divisions are wrong. Uh oh, <laughs> Pastor, don't tell me there's something in my Bible that's wrong. The chapter divisions are often wrong. 
Okay, they are added later. They're not written by the. They're not written by Isaiah. They're just written by somebody who translates the Bible, and they throw in the chapter divisions. Sometimes the Hebrew chapter divisions are different than your English ones. <laughs> Makes it even worse. Okay, so the first stanza is in chapter 52. And notice I've, I've called it the unperceived exaltation of the servant. Unperceived exaltation of the servant. It's talking about exaltation, but people aren't going to see it. They're not going to get it right away. Uh, this is also written in a chiastic structure. Chiastic structure means it turns back on itself. This structure is maybe one of the most common ones used in the ancient Near East, used in, uh, used in a lot of ancient writings. And so what you have is in the very first paragraph, the last paragraph of the poem says the same thing as the first paragraph. So the last paragraph is about the exaltation of the servant or the ultimate success of the servant. You'll see that next week when we talk about it. The second part, verses 1 through 3, is the rejection and the unattractiveness of the servant. That corresponds to verses 7 through 9, the oppression and the death of the servant. Finally, the middle of the poem is the highlight. Okay, So usually it's right in the very middle. That's the key to the story in, in Hebrew writing. So here you have verses 4 through 6 the vicarious atonement uh, where he says, Surely he took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. So he's being punished for our sins. And he's carrying our sins. And as we see him being punished for our sins, we're going, look, God really hates him. God is hammering him. And yet, really, he is paying for our sins. The problem is our estimation of what's taking place. We look at Jesus going to the cross, and humanly speaking, you go, he must be a loser. God must hate him. Because God would not let his most cherished follower be killed on the cross at the age of 30-something. That's a waste. God's going to let his most precious person that he loves the most live to be a hundred. Isn't that the way we think? I know those of us who are old like to think that. <laughs> I'm old because I'm good. Those people that die in their 60s, oh, they deserve it. <laughs> Jesus died in his 30s. God couldn't have loved him very much. Beautiful passage, beautiful scripture. And that's the highlight, that's the highlight of the poem as he gets into those middle verses of the section and he says, here he is, he's being hammered for our sins. We consider it to be, God must hate him. But really, it's the most wonderful thing that God has done. Okay, if you go to the next slide, we'll just skip that. Go to the next slide. Okay, the first paragraph. 
um, verse uh, 13. In your bulletin, notice it says, See, my servant will act wisely. This is Yahweh who is speaking. So God himself is speaking. That's the way he's writing the poem. God is the one saying this. This is my servant. My servant will act wisely. He will do the right things. And uh, I saw, so Yahweh is speaking. And then the, the, the large caption, it's a surprising exaltation that he is eventually recognized. A surprising exaltation is eventually recognized. So let's go to the next slide. So here's the first verse. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Okay, so now this is poetry. And you're probably going to me, Pastor, it doesn't look like poetry to me. Roses are red. Violets are blue. Let, you know, that's poetry, right? Um, I smell good and so do you. You know, it's got it's to rhyme. As long as it rhymes, it's poetry, right? If it doesn't rhyme, it's not poetry, okay? <laughs> Their poetry's different, okay? Their poetry's different. And what they do is the second line either completes the thought of the first line or it says the same thing as the first line. It's called parallelism. So they rhyme ideas instead of rhyming sounds. We rhyme sounds, they rhyme ideas. Okay, that's the first thing about poetry. The second thing about poetry is poetry is trying to get you to feel something. And so it uses pictures and images so that you get some emotional response. And we'll see that in this poem. So here's the big heading to the poem. My servant will act wisely. He's going to do all the right things. He's going to do exactly what I want him to do. And as a result of that, he's going to be raised up, lifted up, and he's going to be highly exalted. Because he acts wisely, of course, he's going to do well in life and it's going to turn out really well. Makes sense. Right? I would say the same thing about your life. If you act wisely, you're going to do well in life. Same thing's true of Jesus. Acts wisely, he will do well. Now this is a prophecy. Okay? How does this take place in the life of Jesus? Well, you notice almost everything he does is done well. Wisely. Exactly the way God wants him to do it. And as a result, God does exalt him. Now, it takes a long time for that to happen, right? First, he's got to die, but then he comes up out of that tomb and he is exalted, ascended to heaven. Okay, go to the next slide. Now, you have the great exaltation. Now in verse 14, surprising Appall, appalling, appalling nature of Jesus. Just as there were many who were appalled at him. Okay, the next line talks about the appalling. 
his appearance was so disfigured. Keeps on talking about that. Beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. Now, I, I think this is poetry. So some of this is figures of speech, and one of the figures of speech is hyperbole. So when it says, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, is it, is it saying that there has never been a human being so disfigured? I don't think that's what it's saying. I think that's hyperbole. I think what it's saying is that when you look at him, you go, is that a human being? Human beings don't look like that. His form marred beyond human likeness? That's not a human being I like to look at. And I think it's talking about Jesus hanging there on the cross. And if you were walking by that cross, you don't stand there and go, wow, that's beautiful. You would stand there and you go, that's disgusting. In fact, that's why they crucify people that way, so that you would be so disgusted and so abhorred at what you were seeing on the cross, you would not run afoul of the Romans because they would humiliate you and kill you in the worst way possible to just dehumanize you. That's what they're trying to do. Dehumanize you. Strip you naked, beat you half to death so that you can't do anything to stop them, and then let you hang on a cross for days so that you would just hang there and die by suffocation and from the elements killing you. And you would walk by and you would see something on a cross and you would go, is that really a human being? That's not what a human being looks like. It's abhorrent. It's kind of like looking at pictures of, uh, of liberated concentration camps after World War II. And you, see those skeleton, and you see those skeletons walking around and you go, how is that person even walking around? Like, I can't believe something like that can walk. It doesn't look like a real human being. And this is what the prophet is saying is going to happen to the servant of God. He is going to be so marred and so disfigured and beaten that you would say, it doesn't even look human to me. And of course, notice people are appalled. It makes no sense. Here, exalted in the first verse, and in the second verse, beaten beyond human recognition. If you go to the next, next screen, verse 15. So, from this, he will sprinkle many nations. And he uses that one word, sprinkle, in the Hebrew Bible. That word, sprinkle, is used most of the times for what priests do when they sprinkle blood on the altar, or when they sprinkle blood on someone, or they, when they sprinkle clean water on someone to clean them, it's used most often for what a priest does, sprinkling things. By the way, Roman Catholic priests still do that when they sprinkle their holy water. He will sprinkle many nations. 
And kings will shut their mouths because of him. They'll be so surprised that they won't have anything to say. For what they were not told, they will see. For what they have not heard, they will understand. Um, Why are they shutting their mouths? Why are they shutting their mouths? I think it's because they're so amazed. So amazed they have nothing to say. Last night uh, at uh, Banquet at Temple, uh, John mentioned, I think, that we were playing music there. And uh, they had a little skit. And they had someone come up, Jim Watson, and they asked him what he wanted for Christmas. Now, Jim was on the spot. Jim didn't know what to say. He shouldn't have said anything. What Jim did say was, he says, I want a new wife. (laughs) And nobody could hear what he said except the people on the front row. And so the guy standing behind it, beside him was really fast. And he said into the microphone, what Jim said was he wanted a new windshield wiper. <laughs> he was so quick, I was stunned. <laughs> and then I was laughing so hard, I couldn't do anything. Um, it's funny, sometimes you see something that's so unbelievable, you don't know what to say. And uh, that's what happens when Jesus sprinkles many nations, and the kings, they don't know what to say. This, it's, it's unbelievable. this is so unusual, this is so unbelievable. There's, there's nothing to say. Uh, what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Uh, it's a new message. And actually, it's not a new message. It's just they never got it. And now for the first time, they're getting this message. The Apostle Paul quotes this verse to say this is why he takes the gospel around the world. He takes this as his promise that people will respond to the gospel. What they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. And so Paul says, I take the gospel around the world. That's what Isaiah 52 is talking about. If you go to the next slide. The next part. The message of a successful Messiah will not be believed because of his inconsequential family, his lack of personal beauty, his sufferings, and his unpopularity. It's an unbelievable message. Notice the prophet describes the servant's rejection and humble appearance. The suffering is offensive and people are turned away by it. If you go to the next slide there. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So the prophet asked the question, who has believed our message? What's the answer to that? No one. Nobody believes the message. That God's servant will be hammered. And that the hammering will help you. And will lead to his exaltation. Nobody believes that. Who has believed our message? No one. Notice the second phrase. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
And so if I asked you what is the message, he tells you in the second part there. The message is the arm of the Lord. Now, does God have an arm? Hmm. It's not supposed to be a hard question. <laughs> you don't know what to say. Pastor, we're stuck. <laughs> we don't want to look bad. God doesn't have an arm. God is a spirit, right? God doesn't have a body. Okay, this should not come as news. <laughs> this should not be the first time you're hearing this. <laughs> God does not have an arm. He does not have legs. He doesn't have feet. He doesn't have eyes. He doesn't even have a brain. Right? He's a spirit. So it's hard, it's hard to think of, well, if he doesn't have a brain, how in the world does that? Never thought about that before. Right? That's a flesh and blood thing. God is a spirit. And so here you have a figure of speech. So the figure of speech is talking about the arm of the Lord. Now, what does the arm of the Lord mean? It's not Jesus. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is what God is going to do. His actions. So it's a beautiful way to speak about what God is going to do. And it's talking about the arm of the Lord. Right? So if you talk about the arm of the Lord, it's got good muscles. Right? He can do great things and He does mighty things. Because he's got, he's got the strongest arm there is. So it's talking about what He does. And so, to whom has this action plan of God, what God is going to do, who has, who has been revealed it to? No one. Which is, now that's a figure in a speech in and, of, in and of itself. Because He's telling us right here, here's the plan of God. No one believes it. And no one gets it. And you know it from the story of Jesus. Wise men go to the city of Jerusalem. And they go to the king. And they say, where is he who is born of the king of the Jews? Herod doesn't know. So he asks the religious leaders, do they know where he's born? We know where he's born, they said. Go to Bethlehem. That's where the king of the Jews is born. Go to Bethlehem. How many of them went? Just the wise men. The religious leaders say he's born in Bethlehem. They don't go. <laughs> they knew. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. None of them showed up. They didn't believe it. When Mary gave birth, how many people were there when she gave birth? Zero, right? Her and Joseph. Her and Joseph. It took an angel from the sky to come down to shepherds and say, go into the town and see a baby who has been born for you. And so shepherds show up because angels come and tell them. Otherwise, nobody else is going to be there. Even though he told them in the Bible. 
He's coming from the line of David. It's going to be in the, in the, in the town of Bethlehem. People should have been watching the line of David, right? Let's keep track of the line of David. How many people were keeping track of the line of David? Nobody was. Nobody cared. They didn't believe it. So this poem is also about Jesus taking our sin and taking our punishment. We know that happens on the cross. Did Jesus tell his disciples that was going to, that, that was going to happen? Yes, he did. He told them why it was going to happen. He told them when it was going to happen. He told them how it was going to happen. How many of the disciples were at the cross saying, this is the greatest thing we've ever seen? God is paying, God is punishing Jesus for our sin. And God is doing a wonderful thing for the world. How many disciples were there saying that? Zero. Zero. The ones that were there were there in shock and awe and crushed when they should have said, this is the greatest thing we've ever seen. This is the activity of God. God is doing this. God is doing wonderful things here on this cross. And all of them were going, we can't believe it. This is, this is destroying our lives. We don't know what to do. We are crushed. Because they didn't believe it. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Even those who got the message didn't get the message. Because it's, un it's an unbelievable message. It doesn't make sense. If you go to the next slide. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. Like a tender shoot. A tender shoot is that little thing that first comes up out of the ground. You know, the little, little green little things just popping up out of the ground. And, uh, you know, something as it pops up out of the ground, be careful where you walk. <laughs> because if you step on it, it's gone. It's crushed. It's so fragile and so insignificant. That's talking about Jesus. Like a root out of dry ground. First of all, roots aren't that promising. And dry ground is the worst. You would say, that plant's not going to make it. It's not significant at all. My family and I, we used to walk at Henderson Conservation Area in Petrolia. And as we walked the trails around there, there were roots that were across the trail. And so they painted the roots orange for us city dwellers who don't know how to walk through the woods so that we don't trip over the roots because you wouldn't pay any attention to them. So they painted them orange for us. That's how insignificant roots are. You've got to paint them so that we don't walk on them and trip on them. Talk about Jesus. Uh, what did that mean in his life? Uh, 
what town did he live his childhood in? Nazareth. Nazareth. Nazareth was so small, <laughs> you can almost make a joke about it. The city of Nazareth took four acres of land. The church here is on three acres. Okay, so the church is on three acres. If you added maybe a little more now, Bob, that we got the extra land out front, a little bit more, okay. I don't know if we're up to four acres yet. So just a little bit more than what the church is sitting on would be the entire village of Nazareth. Forty homes. Forty homes. That was the whole village of Nazareth. And it was built on the side of a hill. It was built on the side of a hill because that was the cheapest land. Nobody else wanted it. And so the people of Nazareth built their homes on the side of a hill that within 50 years it would all be turned into tombs. They'd put, it, they'd put a cemetery there, thinking this place is so insignificant, it's so unimportant that we'll just put a cemetery here. And today, people, dis, dis, they don't believe the Jesus story because they go, we've never heard of the town of Nazareth before. No place outside of the Bible mentions Nazareth. And there are people who write about first century Palestine. Josephus is a general in the Jewish army. He's in charge of Galilee. And he mentions all the towns of, of Galilee, never mentions Nazareth. The reason? It was so insignificant and so poor, no one ever talked about it. It's like talking about the town of Croton. You've heard of Croton before? Is anybody here from Croton? Jim Hale's from Croton. <laughs> if you need to know where it is, ask Jim. I just know there are two roads that come together somewhere, and that's Croton. <laughs> By the way, nothing significant ever came from Croton. <laughs> that's what they said about Jesus, right? Nothing significant ever came from Nazareth. Too poor, too little... There's, there's no one of consequence who lives there. Nobody who has money lives there. If they had money, they wouldn't be in Nazareth. And if they were important, they wouldn't be in Nazareth. And if they had connections, they wouldn't be in Nazareth. The only people who are in Nazareth are the people that don't matter. Maybe a carpenter. Maybe a shepherd. That's the only people who are going to live in Nazareth. That's Jesus. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. The first time Joanne and I were watching television, not the first time we watched television, but we were watching television, the first time we saw Barack Obama on TV. And he was running for the Senate in Illinois. And we saw Barack Obama on TV, and Joanne says to me, he's going to be president of the United States someday. And I said to you, I said to her, I said, I think you're right. Because he was good looking, and he was articulate. 
and you listened to him and you said, you know something, that comes across television very well, he's going to do well. Beautiful person speaking beautiful words, you're going to do well. No one followed Jesus because of how he looked. Think about it. Do you have any description in the Bible of how he looked? By the way, there isn't any. I'm asking you, though. Nobody goes, man, let's follow Jesus. Man, he's so, he's so youthful and energetic. He's so good-looking. Uh, people are attracted to a Barack Obama or a Brad Pitt, a Jesus Christ. By the way, Brad Pitt's going to play me in my life. When the, movie, when the movie comes out. I've already chosen Brad Pitt. Uh, no one was following Jesus because of his attractiveness or his charisma. But when they listened to him, they, they, they said he has an authority that no one else has. In fact, the opposite would be true of Jesus. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance there are only things that drive us away from him. If you go to the next slide. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. And by the way, those lines go together. Despised and rejected, a man of suffering. You don't want to hang around somebody that suffers all the time. It's just depressing. Uh, we just read a book for the book club, The Last Hunger Season. And it's a, it's a story about uh, subsistent farmers in western Kenya. And as you read the book and you read about their lives, I got to the place where I didn't want to turn the page because of all the bad things that happened to them. They're just trying to, they're trying to raise enough food so they can make it a whole year without starving. But after a couple of months, the food runs out. They've, they've bought a cow so they could be a little more prosperous. The cow dies. They get malaria and they have to pay for medication out of their pocket. Kids have to have school fees. Then the few crops they have harvested get mold on them, so they have to throw it away. Finally, story after story, I just go, I can't read this anymore. It's too depressing. You don't want to read about all these troubles that people are having. Same thing's true of Jesus. He's a man of suffering and people don't want to attach themselves to it. People are starting to hate him and people don't want to be around that. Like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Uh, this uh, basketball season, I was getting so excited for the Boston Celtics. They had a new player. And uh, the very first game of the season, he was playing. And when he went up and he came down, he broke his leg. And right on the TV, his leg went, like, just like that. The bottom, the bottom bones above his, above his ankle just, just broke. And it was, it was like that, right on TV. And the guy who was standing beside him turned and looked and he saw the broken ankle and he went like this and he turned away. And I saw it on TV and I go, I don't want to see that. 
because when I play basketball, <laughs> I don't want to think about jumping up and landing and breaking my leg. And so automatically you turn your face away and you don't want to see it. That's talking about Jesus Christ. And when He's there on the cross, people don't want to be there. They don't want to be around Him. They don't want to see it. They don't want to attach themselves to it because it's ugly, it's suffering, and it's terrible. And so what do you do with Jesus? Stay away from Him. He's a loser. Next week, you find out what happens. <laughs> the rest of the poem. Beautiful poem talking about the coming of Jesus into the world and why it's significant. Let's look to the Lord in prayer.